and um, welcome to this special um, COVID bulletin episode of <laughs> I Am A Health Visitor. Um, yeah. It's Jenny here. And Amy. And um, thank you so much to the um, thousand of you or a thousand Plus. and a bit of you yeah. who have um, listened to our last podcast. Um, mm. That's amazing. <laughs> We've yeah, never had good. figures quite that mad um so it's uh brilliant thank you so much to everyone who's listened to it and everyone who's reached out on social media to um comment on it and been sharing it and been yeah. talking about how useful they've found it and um as we said if you had any other queries to let us know and obviously <laughs> given the uh, dynamism of covid nothing stays the same for very long so we thought we would do a very quick update around some of the things that have come up with um, yeah, we've had a few questions asked. back, haven't we? Which is great. That's exactly what we wanted because there must be exactly. things that we didn't cover um, that people are worried about. So yeah, we wanted to try and catch all those things, didn't we? So um, it's not going to be the normal length, but we're just going to rattle through these, and uh, you never know. Maybe we could end up having sort of a few more bulletins along the way with yeah, extra updates and things. Yeah. So one of the first things that came up, and I know it was something we covered really briefly. We were really pushed time wise to go into everything in as much detail as we wanted. Yes. Was around pregnancy and conception. Yeah. And this is something that's continued to be a bit of an issue isn't it it's yeah, something which people so. are still being very worried about and yeah. concerned about which yeah. is understandable oh absolutely i mean to be honest with you this myth kind of made me really quite cross really when i was reading about it because um and you know cross amy we have seen her on the podcast before yes um so you're about to see her again um <laughs> it did make me cross Can... because it's just not true and it's it's um Really, when you actually look into it in terms of the science, there isn't really a solid backing for for it at all in any yeah. way. Um, and yet it seems to have got such a lot of kind of traction, really. And um, and the reason, I think, is, is because it preys on the one thing that's probably the most terrifying to women you know, who are of childbearing age and hoping to have a bigger family. Um, Infertility is just terrifying, isn't it? It's just terrifying for all of us. So I think um, the fact that it's so scary and such a a terrifying concept has really given fire to the um, argument, really, which um, is sad. So so I know we were sharing between ourselves, we shared on our um, social media the other day, the mm-hmm. statement that came actually only what two three days ago from oh, no. the Long Royal awaited. College of Gynecologists and the uh, Royal College of Midwives. Yeah, at long last um, they've written something to say this is nonsense, folks. Yeah, I mean they literally. Oh, I mean Dr. Edward Morris, who's the president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, says there's no biologically plausible mechanism exactly. by which current yeah. vaccines would cause any impact on women's fertility. No, exactly um, But no, I mean, currently, for women in the age group, which would be considering pregnancy, it's only been offered to two groups, health and social care workers, um, and those with serious medical conditions who have greater risk of severe illness from COVID-19. 
Um, and yeah, pregnant and breastfeeding women who are eligible in these groups will be offered the vaccine. Yeah. Um, one of the other issues I've seen come up a lot is that it feels like a lot of people are going in to have the vaccination with more up-to-date information than those actually giving know, it, which is really frustrating. Yeah. Um, and it's that interesting where I've now seen various things about the, the guys who are actually on the front line doing the immunisation yeah. are actually coming from quite a, a, you know, often a non-medical background. Sure. And currently being trained up to do it. And so good for them to for volunteering. They're having to work within the performer that they've been given. Yeah. Um, but it is worth making sure, you know, something like that statement from the the um, R- RCOG, yeah. RCOG and RCM, mm. um would be very useful to have to be able to say look and i believe there are there is actually someone senior medical whether it's a gp or a senior nurse on site at immunization centers or vac- uh, on site at vaccination centers to um actually give opinion yeah give any, their answer insight any question and yeah enable these to run smoothly so yeah. it could be worth even saying well can i speak to who's in charge yeah, so it's really good. This is a very welcome statement, that's for sure. I just wanted to say um, about where the kind of myth came from, really, because I think yes. people are probably wondering where did it actually even come from in the first place. It was all over social media, and I think there's been a lot in the kind of anti-vax community around it. Yeah. Um, and they unfortunately have quite a loud voice um, mm-hmm. when these things are concerned. So I do think it's sensible to kind of at least just tell people where it came from so that that um, reassures them a little bit, hopefully. Um, and what the argument is, you need to know what the argument is in order to know that it's not accurate, if that makes sense. Um, so essentially this came from, um, an epidemiologist and doctor who teamed up with a former Pfizer employee, um, and they put in a request to the European Medicines Agency to delay the approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So that's the mRNA um, vaccine that was approved first. There's two mRNA vaccines, as you'll know from our main episode, the Pfizer one and the Moderna. Um, yeah. So this was the Pfizer one, the first one that came out. And the 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 reason that they gave for wanting to delay it um, was a protein called syntysin 1. So right. syntysin 1 is an important comp- component of the placenta in mammals, yeah. basically. Um, and it's obviously in our bodies. Um, and it shares similar looking um, genetic instructions with a part of the coronavirus spike so you if you remember the um coronavirus um protein itself has a spike on the surface of it and that's yes. what um, the vaccines are teaching our immune system to recognize so the vaccines uh-huh. at work by showing our immune system what this spike looks like and saying this is a spike of coronavirus um, and then our immune system can produce antibodies and t-helper cells um, that can then fight off um, the virus if we were to catch it naturally yeah that's how the vaccine works um, and the yeah. argument they were making was if the spike of the protein for coronavirus looks similar to the spike of the protein for syntysin 1. It could cause um, the body to respond in the same way to the protein in the human placenta. So you can see see. that there's just enough sense there um, for it to sound like it could be a real thing. Um, Yeah. 
So essentially, to, to reassure people on that, what we know is that the amount of genetic um, similarity between syntiacin 1 and coronavirus is, is very small. It's not... Um, we don't have any reason to think that it would in any way be treated as the same, recognised as the same as the um, spike in the actual virus. It doesn't look similar enough for that to be an issue. Um, and when see. they looked into this um, before, so this has been filed as a, as a you know, application to delay the um, release of the vaccine. Um, yeah. And... It was looked at and considered by the European Medicines Agency and considered to be not a concern, not a threat. Um, yeah. And every statement I've seen from anyone um, from a reputable source has said that, quite honestly, this really doesn't have a plausible biological mechanism. So that isn't something that would happen, that um, confusion between syntiacin 1 spike and coronavirus spike. They just don't look similar enough. Um one analogy I've seen is it's a little bit like saying these two phone numbers are very similar because they both have a seven in them. Right. So they do share some similarities, but nowhere near close enough to be confused. Yeah. Basically. I mean. Um, but it's really kind of gone mad in terms of circulation and it's been prolific in terms of who's sharing this and... Um, getting concerned about it and I think a lot of that is from fear really and ultimately I think what we have to remember is vaccines in general don't cause long-term side effects as I said in the actual podcast itself we don't have any convincing evidence from any scientific research so far about any vaccine ever that there have been long-term side effects caused as a result of them so the fact that we don't have long-term data about these vaccines isn't necessarily a concern we don't, there's no reason to think that it would cause any long-term side effects whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. And we can also, we know that plenty of people have got pregnant during the Pfizer trial. So actually yeah. in the trial, um, they did pregnancy tests prior to being accepted to the study because you, you it was one of the exclusion criteria for the study initially, which is a standard thing for all kind of medical research in the this stage of research. Um, yeah. And they excluded people who were already pregnant. But during the trial, they had 23 women conceive, likely by accident, they're saying. Um, And 12 Uh of these pregnancies happened in the vaccine group and 11 in the placebo group. And there's been no (laughs) negative impact on any of them so far. No. Um, And obviously now this vaccine has been given really widely. Um, We don't have any evidence that it's caused any problems with any conception there's plenty of people who've got pregnant after having the vaccine there's no reason to think that it would cause an issue with conception um and also we don't have any reason to think that the actual virus itself causes a problem with with conception um or with pregnancy so if there was going to be a problem from the vaccine we would likely see that same problem in coronavirus um, and coronavirus has been widespread enough across the globe by now for us to know if it caused a problem in helping in women conceiving. And um, there's been no change in fertility rates that we've seen or anything like that. So, um, right. you know, hopefully that's reassuring for people as well. Yeah. Um, but there really yeah. is no reason to be concerned about this. If you're somebody who's planning to get pregnant, um, there's no reason to think that the vaccine could stop you from getting pregnant. No. Um, cool. There's also no reason to... Um, avoid pregnancy after having the vaccine so that's the other thing um 
when they now say, you know, you can have the vaccine and then get pregnant straight away. There's no reason to kind of wait. Yeah. Um, at the minute, the standard advice for the general public, unless you're in a high risk group, is that in pregnancy, um, you don't have the vaccine um, purely because, as we've discussed in the podcast, we don't have any data on giving mm-hmm. this vaccine in pregnancy yet. But that's, you know, a risk benefit decision that you make with your doctor. And if you're in a high risk group like a healthcare worker, um, you can um, choose to still have the vaccine if you feel that your risk of catching COVID is higher. And we talked about the risks of COVID in pregnancy in the podcast episode as well. So if there's anyone kind of thinking about that, then um, that's worth a listen. Um, yeah. But certainly you don't need to avoid pregnancy after having the vaccine. You don't need to worry if you have the vaccine and then get pregnant unexpectedly shortly after that. There's no reason to think it would be dangerous in any way. Yeah. Um, Currently, the advice is if you've had the first dose and then you become pregnant, you should delay the second dose until the pregnancy is over unless you're high risk. And that's just in line with the standard pregnancy vaccination advice at the moment. Yeah. Um, Um, I think the the next area that people have expressed concern with um, is around anaphylaxis. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, Yes, so anaphylaxis has also been in the news following the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccination. Um, So we know that anaphylaxis is a possible side effect of vaccination, just the same as it's the possible side effect with any drug administration. Um, It's generally, we have a lower risk of anaphylaxis with vaccines than we do with drugs overall. Um, Uh So typically we expect to see about one case of anaphylaxis for every million doses of vaccine that are given that's what we kind of expect that's the normal level with vaccination which is again um lower than we'd see with a lot of drug administration anaphylaxis rates okay Um, in the case of the pfizer BioNTech vaccine there was a study done which is the best kind of data that we have about the rates of anaphylaxis in that in that vaccine and they found 21 cases of anaphylaxis after administration of 1,893,306 first doses. So their rate there is 11.1 cases per million doses. Wow. Okay. So it's a a higher rate than it is for a normal vaccine. It's still a lot lower rate of anaphylaxis than you see with many drugs. So, you know, the penicillin group being the classic example, but there are other drugs as well that um have high rates of allergy to them um so it's still lower than that but higher than a normal vaccine um they did find that 71 percent of these um cases occurred in the first 15 minutes of vaccination yeah so that's why so there's that's the 15 why yeah exactly. everyone waits for 15 minutes before they go anywhere yeah. yeah exactly so the reasoning they think behind this um is so there's an ingredient in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that is also in the um, Moderna vaccine called PEG, which stands for polyethene glycol. So very catchy. Um, uh-huh. And that is an ingredient in these vaccines that we haven't seen in other vaccines previously because of this, the fact that it's an mRNA vaccine. So it's one of the ingredients that they're using as the lipid to coat the mrna in just to make sure that it can survive long enough to have an effect basically um and that peg component is known to be a allergenic 
um, component of other drugs. So when we it's present in lots of products. So we see PEG in um, some foods, in cosmetics, in some medications, household household products, um, and it's known to be um, a cause of allergy. Um, so for that reason, they're thinking that might be why there are a slightly higher level of anaphylaxis in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine than in other vaccines. So they're saying um, if you have a known allergy to PEG, yeah, um, you shouldn't have this Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine or the Moderna um, vaccine, um, but you should have the Oxford-AstraZeneca as a okay. alternative if that's available because obviously that doesn't contain PEG and it's um it's not an mRNA vaccine so it doesn't need um no. the stabilization of the the PEG lipid. Oh, it feels quite complicated, doesn't it? And also because I know a lot of people <laughs> yeah. aren't aware which vaccination they're going to be offered until they get sure, there. Sure, sure. But if you know that you do have an allergy to PEG, um, so it is very rare, I would like to say. So the largest yeah. case series of an allergy to PEG that we have to date that's been published in um, published literature is five cases. Okay. So it's not a big <laughs> widespread allergy. Um, no. But um, it may explain, because obviously when you're talking about the number of millions of doses that we're talking about, um, it's it's a possible explanation for why we're having a higher reaction to them. So if you know that you have an allergy to PEG or you have an unidentified medication allergy, so you've reacted negatively to a number of medications in the past, um, yeah. it may be that the ingredient they have in common is PEG um, because there's a possibility that we have some undiagnosed PEG allergies. Um, so if you have had a medication reaction in the past, um, yeah. then it's worth discussing that with the vaccinator. Um, right. And that you may be offered the Oxford-AstraZeneca one as an alternative. Um, the other yeah. contraindication is if you've had a previous negative reaction to either the Pfizer or the Moderna um, for your first dose of vaccine, yeah. then you would be offered, again, you would be offered the Oxford um, vaccine as the second dose as an alternative because, again, you're not likely to have the reaction in because of that same mechanism that I just explained. Does that make sense? Yes. So the only contraindications to it are if you're allergic to any of the ingredients and the main one that is likely, that is a possibility really that you'd likely be allergic to is PEG. Um, right. So if you have a PEG allergy or if you've had a negative anaphylactic or allergic reaction to the to the first dose of the vaccine, they're the only two contraindications. So any other allergies, food allergies, latex allergies, any other kind of allergy, um, you can have it without concerns. So no reason to think Good. you would be more likely to have a reaction to the Pfizer vaccine because you've got a latex allergy, for example, or because you've got a food allergy or a fish oil allergy or whatever else. And yeah. the um, Allergy UK and Anaphylaxis um dot org um websites are both excellent with this and they've got a full list of different allergies can i still have the vaccine shouldn't i not you know which one should i have those types of questions so if anyone's got quite a specific allergy question about themselves they're quite good sources to look for i would say um but yeah there's um it's, it's a small increased risk of anaphylaxis yeah. Um, the vast majority of which of those cases take place in the first 15 minutes. And that's why they've put into place that safety net of um, staying in that um, vaccination site for 15 minutes after vaccination. So that if you did have an anaphylactic reaction, that could be dealt with and managed safely. Yeah, brilliant. So hopefully Good. that's helpful around the allergy and anaphylaxis side. 
Yes, yeah. So and then we've got the, um, the final area that we were asked to uh, consider further. Mm-hmm. Which was about immunity, wasn't it? So Yes, if you... so... And yeah. and this is something which I'm must I'm surprised it hasn't been more about in the press. Two mm. things I'm surprised that they haven't used the media more are around whether you need the immunisation if you've had COVID previously. Because the fact mm-hmm. that all of you know we are in a lot of groups with fellow healthcare professionals and they're we're all scratching our heads about it. Um, mm. And you just think, well, my God, for the general public, how many of them are possibly declining invites because they think because they've had it, they don't need the immunisation? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that, and also lateral flow testing is my other bugbear at the moment, which I know I'm I'm bringing into it something we're not going to properly talk about today. But it's no, all in good okay. opening lateral flow testing centres. But for regular people i can understand for healthcare professionals that's really useful to go and do those tests because especially with health visiting you're going to still be seeing some people face to face at points during the week but if you Mm. are stuck at home schooling your children going to the supermarket once a week um you, you kind of end up thinking well should i get an actual flow test should i not what you know what will the the bonus be of it or anything you know it's really confusing because what's the pro cons yeah exactly maybe that can be our might be worth us having yeah i mean if you're listening to this and you're thinking oh that would be really useful i'd like to hear about that then um give us a shout if that's something you're unsure of or you'd like a further discussion of we can easily include that in a future episode um, I haven't done enough research on it to be able to talk about it particularly no, in the moment. Sorry. But... No, no, it's, it is, it's interesting. It is really right. annoying. But the thing is, these things are coming up all the time, aren't they? And I think um, that's part of the problem with the response to this pandemic is that it all has to be so quick. And really, yeah. before any of us properly understand anything, you know, we're having to give advice to other people about it. So um, if you're a health visitor in those shoes and you're thinking like, actually, you're feeling we're doing a lot of questions from people around those testing centres, then do get in touch with us because... Um, you know, something we can cover if we need to, if it's helpful for people. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, sorry. But yeah, the Back immunity, to... we've been asked to talk yeah. about zero positivity, haven't we? So if you have previously had COVID in the past, what does this mean for you in terms of the vaccination? Um, which really is a question about immunity levels following COVID, either following infection or following vaccination. So we're talking this about um, natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity. Obviously, natural immunity being I've had the actual disease um, and recovered, um, and what level of protection does that offer me, that natural immunity, and vaccine-induced immunity, I've had the vaccine, not the actual disease, and I've had, you know, my natural body's immune response stimulated by this vaccine um without me having to actually catch covid what level of protection does that give me so there's been a study done um was the siren study which people might have heard of was a really big study going on um from public health england and they've looked at naturally acquired immunity as a result of past infections and they found that roughly the best estimate they've got is about 83% protection against reinfection compared to people who've not had the disease before. So that's a comparable statistic to the vaccine efficacy statistic. It's measuring the same thing. The level of protection against reinfection compared to people who haven't had the disease before. Yeah? Yeah. Um. 
if you don't really understand that and the stats behind it, it's worth a listen to our other podcast episode where we talk about vaccine efficacy and what that statistic actually means, um, the actual main COVID vaccines episode. Um, but yeah, so they're thinking around 83% protection and that appears to last for five months from first becoming sick. That's the estimate they've got at the moment. So five months, about 83% effectiveness. Um oh. And that's natural immunity, okay? Yeah. Um, so in terms of numbers, they looked between the 18th of June and the 24th of November and they found 44 potential reinfections out of 6,614 participants who had tested positive to antibodies, which represented an 83% rate of protection. That's where they get those numbers from, okay? I see. Um, Public Health England have warned, though, um, that although you have some protection from becoming ill with COVID themselves, so that 83% statistic that they just mentioned, um, obviously it's not 100%, um, but also there is some evidence from the next stage of the study that some of those individuals do still carry high levels of the virus and could be transmitting it to other people. So they're saying, you know, act as if you don't have immunity in the sense that you could still be infecting people. This is still a risk. You still need to take the same precautions in terms of mask yeah. wearing and all that type of thing. Yeah. Um. So that's natural immunity. So then what we know, what we don't know really, the, the questions are similar, I suppose, for vaccine-induced immunity. Um. And they, the best answers we have about that are really from the trials. So right. the... Pfizer trial doesn't really give us much data on this, unfortunately, um, but the Moderna one does, um, which is, again, a similar um, type of vaccine. And they found 2.3% evidence of um, infection at baseline in the vaccine group and 2.2% in the placebo group, okay? So about 22 2.3%. And they found when they included those cases in their analysis, um, they found 187 cases of COVID with the placebo and 12 with the um, vaccine. Um, and they calculated that to be a vaccine efficacy of 93.6%. Okay, so similar levels of efficacy to when they didn't include those participants in the analysis. It didn't really make much of a difference to their vaccine efficacy when they included those participants versus when they didn't. Um, so that was their first uh, statement. And then they have also reported um, the numbers of cases that they found, COVID cases, in the control group versus the um vaccine group for patients that were seropositive right so patients that have had covid before obviously um which i think is quite useful and interesting so among participants who were positive at baseline which was 337 in the placebo group and 342 in the um injection the vaccine group one case of COVID-19 was diagnosed in a placebo re recipient and no cases in the um, vaccine recipients. Um, and oh. similar data from the Oxford trial, um, small proportion of participants were seropositive at baseline, 138 out of 10,673 in the UK and 235 
out of 10,002 in Brazil. So they had 1.3% um, in the UK and 2.3% in Brazil um, cool. were positive at baseline. Um, they had three participants who were positive at baseline and then had subsequent um, COVID positive swabs. Yeah. One participant had an asymptomatic infection three weeks after the first dose with the vaccine. And two other participants in the control group had symptomatic infections eight weeks and 21 weeks after their baseline sample was taken. Wow. Okay, so really small numbers that it's hard to draw any big conclusions around yeah. there. But that's the data that that's the data we've got from that trial. Um, yeah. They also said that they ran sensitivity analysis, which uh-huh. in stats is where you include variables that were previously excluded from your analysis to see whether it changes your results. Right. Um, so they hadn't previously included participants who were seropositive at baseline in their analysis. Um, and then they did a sensitivity analysis afterwards to see whether by including them, they would see a big change in the results. And they found that they didn't okay, find a big cool. change. So they're similar, very similar to the main results in terms of when they included that group. Okay. Cool. So yeah, so just... Basically, all we're learning from that really is that there's severe health risks associated with COVID and the fact that yeah. we do have a risk of reinfection, it is possible. Um, yeah. So you should still be offered the vaccine um, and you should still, that, that shouldn't change your decision whether you've had it or not. Um, we no. don't know enough at the moment about how long someone's protected by, from getting sick again after recovering. Um, and natural immunity will vary from person to person um we do have some evidence that natural immunity might not last very long that five months is about the best estimate we've got um we don't know how long the immunity produced by the vaccination lasts until we've got better data on that um so for now um the best bet is to take the vaccine if you're offered it if you're looking to kind of protect yourself from that reinfection um and certainly from a public health standpoint as well in terms of um you may be it may be possible to transmit it still even after having had it once yourself yeah cool wow amy as ever thank you for your depth of knowledge and reading up that you've brought to this for all of us it's just time Um, to read it isn't it it's just time yeah no completely um i hope that's been really helpful and has answered the queries that people had for us um Mm. following the last podcast Mm -hmm. um so we're going to head off now um but we're going to be back with a proper full episode i think later this week isn't it yeah absolutely yeah we're all ready to launch the next one cool and um so in the meantime you can get in touch with us via our social media so we're on instagram at i am a hv we're on facebook um i am a health visitor is the name of our page on there um, and also you can email us um, I am a health visitor long form at gmail.com okay take care in the meantime bye thanks for listening everyone bye